Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Jess Frost. As an adult child of an alcoholic, Jess has spent the last six years of her own deep healing and codependency healing journey, peeling back the layers of her protective mask to reclaim her true, authentic self. This is such an inspirational interview. I really hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, I've been partnering up with Coach Helen Bennett, who specialises in helping people to stop losing control with their food. And she has offered all my listeners a fabulous 10% off for all her courses, classes and private coaching programs. Please head over to her website, helenbennett.co and enter the discount Sober Dave at the checkout. And don't forget to leave a review on my podcast and subscribe. Good morning, Jess. Welcome to One for the Road. Uh, I'm honestly so pleased to have you on my podcast today. The last time I saw you was at Parliament, wasn't it, at a NACOA gathering, and that was such a great day, wasn't it? It was incredible, and we did the big walk. Oh, we did the big walk. We were in... Do not forget oh the big God, walk. Oh, my God, the big walk. That was three days before I went to Morocco, I think. I and, uh yeah, that was 21 miles we did there, wasn't it? Up in the, where were we? We're in the peaks, weren't we? Peak district, that was it. Yeah, it was absolutely stunning. Um, beautiful day, beautiful people. And we raised a lot of money for Nicola as well, didn't we? we so did. it was all round fantastic. It and was. That was the last time I saw you. And I did mention to you then about this and we're here today. So I'm so grateful that you're here to share your story. So where did it all begin? Wow. Mm, that's a <laughs> Where, big question isn't it it is a big question right and yeah I'm going to be really mindful that I have got very strong parts of me that wants to just like tell it like a story to so say oh, I can tell my story in Morrison's to the lady behind me yeah so I'm going to really just you know come back to myself and 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 honor the story so let's begin childhood I had on the face of it and my mum still says this you had an idyllic childhood you know um on the face of it it was very like privileged middle class grew up in nice areas of the midlands mostly leicestershire and you know i was trawling through some photos the other day and i it, it did look lovely right it looked lovely but the reality of the situation was my dad really struggled with his mental and emotional health and he was in and out of psychiatric care when I was younger, um, diagnosed with things like mild schizophrenia, bipolar, psychosis. So there's a lot of memories of kind of visiting psych wards. And looking back, I think, honouring how probably scary that was of, of, of seeing my dad one way at home and then seeing him completely drugged up to the eyeballs. This was back when it was like electroconvulsive therapy. So he was just just not there when I used to visit him. 
And back then, you know, my, my parents had good careers. My mum was in fashion. My dad um, was in advertising and his career started to kind of grind to a halt. I think a mixture of his mental health. He'd actually, I haven't mentioned this in many places, but he joined a cult. He was a very sensitive spiritual man. And I think the intention behind joining this cult, he didn't know it was a dysfunctional, horrendous cult. He thought this was a place of, you know, peer support and humans that were on the same wavelength. But he was giving away most of our family money to the cult every month. They were being fed different hallucinogenics, which for his psychosis was not helpful. Um, And he was just absent a lot of the time. Right. And I know this now from having, you know, an adult chats with my mum, like what, like, what was it like? Cause I have darkness. I have a lot of black memories, mm. but there was definite periods of him being absent, which I now know, you know, when you do the work, how much that will you know, affect my attachment. But from the perspective of alcohol, it was really, it, I thought it was normal how much they drank. And I say they, and my mum would put her hands up. She drank a lot whether you'd call it gray area drinking that they were doing back then, probably, but there was dinner parties galore, pubs. It would be like weekends, we'd be playing in the pub garden, they'd be in the pub, do you know what I mean? And yeah, I just have vivid memories of a little kid just coming down to multiple dinner parties and just kind of sitting on people's knee and there would be my dad at the end of the table, just face down, just asleep. That's all I remember is his head like this. And I think that's where the gray area moved into much more tricky situation for him. But it was just, I just witnessed this as their crutch. I thought it was totally normal, right? That this is what we do. We get stressed or we get really happy and we drink. (laughs) And we moved a lot in childhood. We ended up moving to this very beautiful affluent village in Leicestershire. But at the very time that my dad lost his job, and that was the end of his working life. Um, he got let go again, his mental health and addiction kind of took another level, but we were living in this affluent village, trying to put up a pretense. Meanwhile, my mum didn't know if we could pay the mortgage. I remember like going and getting uniforms on credit, like everything was just credit, but still there was alcohol always, always. So yeah, I grew up with this real conflict of like being around a lot of money but not having a lot of money. And yeah, definitely we could go on to like what that meant money mindset wise and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was very much just feeling like I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in. And at home in private, again, when when my parents were out in the world, it was like, they were called the party couple. They're, you know, my mum would be dancing on tables. My dad was hilarious. Like, and they were like real socialized, but behind closed doors, when we were dealing with the hangovers and the real dark periods of my dad's mental and emotional health, there would be eruptions. I would get shouted at a lot. I I protected my little sister, Rosie, but I was called multiple things when he was drunk and when he wasn't. And never physical, but very just emotional. And yeah, just, yeah, not, not particularly nice. And it all kind of got to a head I guess, when I was 18. So by this point, we'd moved multiple houses and um, I was coming a lot more withdrawn, I think, in terms of my social unit. 
Um, but when I was 18, we lost my dad's parents to suicide and they took their lives together. My dad was an only child. And I remember like so vividly the day that he was like, something's not right. I need to go check on the house. So he drove into Leicester city where they were. And yeah, just remember that phone call saying he'd found them. And I remember me and my sister hiding like with our ears to the door, hearing the police tell them all the details of it. And you kind of think, oh, you know, they took a few pills and they fell asleep. And then we were there like listening to all this detail. And I really feel like that year, that moment was the moment that my life changed. Everyone, everyone's life changed. You know, my mum's mum took her own life. That's three out of four grandparents. So I knew this was going to dredge up everything as well for my mum, for my uncle. And yeah, I think this moment was the moment that I knew my dad was going to get a lot worse. Like the pain I felt for him as like a highly sensitive empath. How old was your dad at the time and how old were his mum and dad? Oh, great question. Okay, so let's do the maths, Jess. So this was like 21 years ago. So my dad would have been like 50. How old would they have been? 70s? Yeah. I'm guessing. Uh, out of You say out of the blue. They always used to say to us, oh, but we're not going to be a burden. They literally say it all the time. Oh, but trust me, trust me, we will never be a burden. And you just go, go, oh, shut up. <laughs> you know? So there was absolutely no warning. Or it was just a completely no. random thing. Um, your, your dad had lost his job, was still in deep addictions and mental health issues. And for you as well, you've grown up with probably a feeling of being resented. If, mm-hmm. if you were completely used as a battering ram and a way to, to, for them to express or your dad to express his addiction issues, you know, like, yeah, you know, like there's always two sides and there? there's the party couple. Then there's the, as you said, so rightly so the bit indoors when they're hung over coming down, you know, I always remember a program called The Street and it really struck me. Yeah. Do you remember? I love that. Yeah. And outside they were completely different to inside. Yeah. And each week they had a different story, didn't they? And they'd be morning, more, do you want a cup of tea and whatever and indoors he'd go in and call his wife a bitch. And yeah. do you know what I mean? Like there's always two sides to the story. So and you had to live as a child growing up through both sides and see that. So for you as well. This, you must have had a lot of your own emotions around this. You know what? It's so funny. I look back now and it's like I can see these parts of myself and why they formed to protect me. Because, and I, I mentioned this to Josh Connolly, like that I feel like I had this part form that looks on the bright side, mm. that whatever I was getting, it would be like, oh, but he's ill. And I think that's what I heard a lot as well. Oh, but your dad's not well. Your dad's not well. So it was like that part of me, that little me would like, okay, I'm going to just brush this off. I'm not going to get upset about it. Um, Yeah. And I remember speaking to my first therapist about it. And I I said, I told her this story that when I was little, when all this was happening, when he was like hungover and shouting and gosh, eggshell living, I describe it. And I used to lie awake at night and I used to have this feeling in my gut. And what I told myself, this is crazy. 
think how amazing children are in a way. But like I told myself that when I had this feeling in my gut, in my belly, this like that someone in the world was thinking nice thoughts about me. And like my my therapist cry, I'm like, (laughs) but like, that's what I did. I, yeah, to, to, to say like, yeah, this it's okay. It's okay. Like, that's what I told myself to feel better, like to protect myself. It's, it's, it's wild and magical and sad (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. So, so you were 18 when this happened. Yeah. So would you mind describing the next few months after that, how that yeah manifests? Yeah, yeah. So just going back a tiny bit, my parents' relationship was really struggling already, right? Um, my dad had been out of work for a long time. My mum was really hustling with work. That's what I saw for my mum. Hustler, breadwinner, very strong woman, but shouldering all of this weight and resentment. I got the private chats from her about how much she was hating this. And then getting it for my dad. So I was kind of like an, the parent as well, holding that. But his he would literally go do whatever he was doing in the day, be in the pub from kind of lunchtime, any time onwards. Mum would get home. It was just, they they never spoke. It was silence. There wasn't arguments. It was just hated, hated each other. And then this happened with my dad's parents. And I could feel this like, oh, God, like they were probably going to break up anyway. And we tried to all be there still as a unit, supporting one another. Um, but just the impact it had, obvi- obviously, on my dad of losing his parents, who he, I think he already had a fractious relationship with, single child. He'd got his own childhood trauma that was unresolved. And then I remember my mum really declining in her mental health, and there was a lot of drinking on both their parts. And I remember having to say to my mum, You're going to have to end this or else both of you are going to be in hospital Mm. or not here like you're going to have to leave and I look back again and like like the pressure that I took on my shoulders to do that and then because I was the one that helped them separate and helped dad get a house again that was used against me sometimes of you've caused all this you're the problem blame blame yeah on me as the elder sibling so the next few months dad moved into his own place me and my sister then became more of the caregivers on his part because my mum just parted ways she didn't really want to know to look after our own health so there was it just got worse and worse and worse it went from very kind of um normal kind of well-dressed middle class going to the pub gray area drinking to he's drinking in the house he soiled himself. He's letting random strangers come and live with that, him in the house. I remember having to put him into hospital. He got like um, sectioned again. And there was these random men living in the house. And I had to leave work. I had to ask if I could leave work to go and get these men out with my partner at the time. And I, we were getting verbally abused. It was horrendous. The house was in disrepair. There was like, you were stepping over bottles there was fag ash everywhere. My dog was living there, my family dog. It, we got had to get the dog out. It was just really sad to see. It just went like zero to 100. That was how he was dealing with his grief and everything else that had piled up. So he managed to live in his own house not very long until he was taken into a car, like a halfway house. 
where you know he had he had care half of the time so yeah it was just me and Rosie going to visit him there I I can say this out loud now because I've said it to his face but I hated him for a long time I was resentful to my mum really resentful that I had to me and my sister were the one dealing with it Mm. I didn't even know that I could have no contact either like I didn't know that I could have taken a break myself and my dad could have been cared for just by the services. I was like very codependent and like the caretaker of like, right, no, this is my role now. Like this is what I have to do, but carried so much resentment inside. So in terms of my private life at work, I was very smiley and very good at my job in recruitment, but behind the scenes, I was angry I would drink on my own. Um, I would watch just reality TV. I would just numb out or I'd get addicted to running. So it was like, I'd just run. I'd run, 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 come home, drink. <laughs> like Forrest Gump. But um, <laughs> so what age were you when you actually started to drink? Oh my God, like 12. Really? <laughs> like, um, so, and we'd laugh about this, right? It was the village norm that... I vividly remember house parties that our parents would be holding and the kids were like, they'd be like, you know, people would bring a bottle and there'd be bottle like round the side of the room. We'd literally go and nick them all yeah, and go to a mate's house in the barn and sit and drink. My dad would buy me alcohol. He would say, I'd rather I know what you're drinking. So he would buy us all the booze. He'd be the parent that would go and buy everyone the booze. Um, So yeah, we would, we were drinking, smoking from a young age but the amount of alcoholism that I now know is in that village and dysfunction is huge. So I'm not surprised that us kids numbed out from a young age either, really. You had such a lot though, didn't you? That you, when, when you said, you know, at work you was functioning and really good at your job, but inside you were dealt with so much. But yeah. at a young age as well. Um, yeah. And and the booze turns it all off, doesn't it? And that's what we say about trauma, isn't it? It's like big T's, little T's, trauma, and not why the addiction, why the pain, all of these things. That, But we kind of manage it by doing it. And we, I don't know, I don't know what age we decide to explore that. But at, at the time, we, we kind of go along with it, don't we? Well, this works because I've got, I'm so overwhelmed by everything else. It's like medication, isn't it? I need to take my medication, which is alcohol. Yeah, 100%. It's just so normal. And when you see it in everywhere, you know, especially when we look back to, you know, the the 90s, the noughties, like Ladette culture, that really pulled me in as well. Yeah, I bet it did. Like I loved like Zoe Ball and all those guys, you know, and they were like, you know, doing pints, trying to drink men under the table. I was like, give me that. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'd got that like feisty part of me as well that was like, yeah, I want to be like them. And I did. I idolized that culture. And I almost like saw it as a strength that I'm one of the last ones standing with the lads, you know? And yeah, it it was just, that's the thing with alcohol, isn't it? It was so normal. And it was just, I went from seeing everyone drink in every scenario growing up to recruitment work hard, play hard. You drank if you had a crap day. You drank if you had an amazing day and hit your target. You drank if you had a mediocre day. Yeah. Drinks, trolleys going round. You know, my dad was telling me about how it was in advertising for him where 
there wouldn't just be drink trolleys, there'd be Coke trolleys going around. It's like so normal. (laughs) And if you don't take part in that, you're the odd one out as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, it was very much as soon as I could get into a pub, that was like the norm, drinking a lot down the pub. And then it was when I had my own house because I'd been modelled bringing alcohol into the house, because a lot of my friends didn't really have that. Their parents didn't really drink at home. But having seen that, that that was the norm, that's what I did too. So I would have a glass of wine at night um, when I was watching TV, especially if I'd had a really rubbish day. And again, with the work and the kind of work hard, play hard, I would then have big nights out with people, celebrating, commiserating, you name it. But I would say in all my relationships as well, alcohol's played a big part where we've all drank a lot more than maybe we'd want to. Um, And we'd be in bands as well. Like I was a singer in different bands and it would be like, again, band practice, booze, like gigs, booze. But it got to a point where in 2017, I'd say it's been a massive part of my journey um, numbing out. 2017 was the point where I looked at alcohol and drugs because there was drugs involved as well. Not all the time, but when things were particularly bad, there would be a mixture of um, alcohol and cocaine probably. And it was in 2017 where I could see the cracks beginning to appear. And I always thought, I I won't be as bad as dad. Like I'm good at my job. Do you know what I mean? But there was a point where I thought, my God, this could actually affect my career. And I was out working in New York at the time. Um, I was doing um, international recruitment for an events company, staying in Brooklyn, working in Manhattan, literally looking over the river. So it looked like the best to people. They were looking at my Instagram going, oh my God, Jess, like this is amazing. Behind the scenes, I was so crumbling. I was crumbling. I was out all the time. And New York, my goodness, if you have any form of grey area drinking or any numbing, New York can be the worst place. You Everywhere you go, it's like happy hour, happy hour. It's the norm to leave work, go get that happy hour. The alcohol strength out there is through the roof. Like I was a beer drinker back then. The, the, the percentages were through the roof and my relationship was crumbling. I just couldn't do it anymore. I had what I call my dark night of the soul. And when I first really started having my own suicidal thoughts, which I hadn't before, literally sitting in a room in New York going, could I like, but then thinking, no, I I wouldn't want to leave my debt (laughs) because I was like 20K in debt as well with my family. And yeah, that was the moment where I guess everything's changed for me and why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the ironic thing about this is by this point, my dad was a good six, seven years sober, which was amazing. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't go to 12 steps or anything like that. He actually just spoke a lot of his trauma and shame out. And that really helped him a lot of secrets he was holding. Um, So he was sober, but what that meant for me was I was redundant. (laughs) As much as I resented having to be his carer, I was redundant. I was lost. There was so much space to have to deal with my own stuff. Yeah, it all caught up with you. Uh, This is the thing about trauma, right? Yeah. It doesn't wait for the perfect moment, right? And 
the big thing as well about suicide and a lot of people that might have suicidal thoughts, it's not that we want to die, but this stuff has been built up and built up and built up and built up like a mixture of so many different things, so many different wounds, just like building up. It was like a Coke can that was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, about to explode. And I, I was, I was exploding everywhere. Yeah. I was exploding in work um, at my partner. Like I was like, someone called me and this hit hard. Someone said, you're like day and night. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, I am. Yeah. I am. Jacqueline Hyde. Yeah. 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 Sunshine and then this darkness. Yeah. And like all this time, my focus had been on my dad. And it was like, he's now sober, living a really beautiful life now. What about me? And I I think probably for all those years, you haven't actually asked yourself that, but what about me? Oh, no, no way. And I remember my partner at the time ringing my mum when I was out in New York going, I think Jess is having a breakdown. And they were all talking about me behind my back. The thought of saying I was having a breakdown, like no chance. My identity was strong, resilient, the one that looks after everyone else. Ladette. <laughs> Ladette. No chance was I having a breakdown. No way. I know it's only in, in the last few years that I've been able to say in 2017 I had a breakdown. Yeah. But didn't even use that language back then. I just said, oh, everything's got too much. But yeah, that was the truth. Because I think what happens there, it's the ultimate reality check, right? Because I had that after Eastbourne. I I had a breakdown and it it took all that stuff for me to reach that point, for me to realise, do you know what? Unless I do something about this, I'm gone. Yeah. And that I had suicidal thoughts. You know, I was looking for tablets one night and if, I'd have found them. I know I'd have had them. You know, yeah. it was the end of the line for me. The, I, you know, I didn't know where to turn. And the Coke can's a good example. Yeah. You know, like I run out of bandwidth. There was no more room. And it just took the tiniest little thing to tip me over the edge and I'd have jumped off the cliff kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Oh, um, my God. Abs- I know exactly what you mean. And that, like, that reality that your self-worth is, like, non-existent. Yeah. Because you were the carer for years. You was the punch bag for years. Yeah. You're an empath, naturally. You know, you're sensitive. We, we talk about um, a lot of us drinkers are highly sensitive. And I, and I think that's true. We're overthinkers. Yeah. You know, and, and more and more and more now, people are being diagnosed with ADHD too. So that's not a buzzword anymore. I think it's a symptom, you know. 100%. You know, and, and we're understanding it more now. But it's interesting what you said before about your mum and dad back in the day. It was different then. There was not so much, well, there was hardly any education. It's what we did, you know. Like, I remember my dad and mum and uncle and auntie with homemade wine. Do you remember the old Demijohn? Yes. Yeah. I used to watch the bubble and that. And they would drink, like, there was no... um limit on percentage. They didn't know what it was. You know what I mean? No. No, it, it was probably like bloody rocket fuel. And I remember them like all laughing and giggling with the music on. And it was part of my growing up. Right. So it's interesting what you say about learned behavior, because I often talk about that. And people say, well, it's hereditary. My dad's an alcoholic and whatever. Well, I have my own views on that um, myself. 
But I also think learned behavior is a huge part of it as well. And, and when you don't know any different, that kind of gets imprinted in your growing up and that. And then subliminally as well, you think, well, this is the norm, you know, uh, having a glass after work to unwind from, as you say, any old day, you know, yeah. no matter it's just an excuse. Go, oh, do you know? And, you know, I said the other day on a podcast about, you know, it becomes part of your daily ritual of like eating, having a shower, blah, blah, or having a drink is part of your daily ritual. Yeah. You know? I resonate so much with what you just said. And I think you're right. I think, I think we can have a mixture. We can have more than one thing of like learned behavior conditioning. And like we say, the fact that we are highly sensitive. And I think it's Gabor Mate that talks about if we are highly sensitive, it doesn't have to be a big T event to cause the same wounds in our in ourselves, those energetic wounds that we have. And I'm not shocked that we will, if we get something that takes that away, even for just a few minutes, yeah. that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't go there. But you know what? I'm, one of the biggest things I've been reflecting on recently, and it's because of the work I do and the more adult children I speak to. Sometimes I think there can be a lot of talk about like, you know, we drink to numb out the darkness and drink because we're feeling really low. And I've recognized in myself how much I drink when I want to numb out joy. I'd like you to go into depth with that. So it's so funny, right? The amount of people, myself included, that go, I just want calm. I want freedom. I want peace. You know, when people go, how do you really want to feel? I'm like, I just want to be peaceful. I just want to be calm, right? The reality of the situation, my body feels incredibly unsafe in that. Yeah. After so much chaos and dysfunction. So one of the things that I've been doing this year, because my goal has been be dry before 40, 40 in March, right? So I've been really sober curious and just noticing what's going on. And the amount of times that my brain goes, have a drink when things are good. When things are calm. Yeah, I'll get that. Do you get it? Like I could lie in bed at night and everything's great. Or like Sundays when I'm having my self-care Sunday or whatever, you know, when I'm trying to just be calm and maybe watch a film, my head's like, and it's going, is your mum okay? What about your dad? You haven't heard from your dad for a few days. What about Roz? Like, what if this happens? And how tricky it is for me to just be like, you know what? Everything's actually okay. Yeah. Let's have a drink. Let's have a drink. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- actually think for a lot of people, that can be an incredibly overwhelming emotion. And I think it's Brené Brown that talks about how we numb and forebode joy. If we've grown up in that dysfunction and that chaos where our nervous system gets addicted to the cortisol of that, actually when we try and suddenly just be peaceful and calm and why people may struggle with meditation and all this kind of stuff. Cause it's like, wow, my body is like, this does not feel safe. This oh, I a hundred percent get that. And now my brain's going because I, I can relate to that so much of it's almost like I created this safety zone for me that, you know, you know what we say when, when you've got a problem with drink, your life is small. Yeah, I felt comfortability in that smallness because it didn't. I didn't have to expand outside it. So I always explain it like I got into this. I, I imagine this like maroon velvet cocoon with a sliding door, and it's got big fur seats in it. it sounds a bit weird, I know, but, <laughs> but I would step in it 
and then my drinking would begin and then gradually the door would slowly close and then I was locked in the cocoon and God forbid anyone that would be banging on the door and disrupt my supposed tranquility, right? But that was inside that cocoon was my full limits of what I wanted. And when you say about monetation, I've, I've never really had money in my world, right? I've got limited money beliefs and whatnot. And it's almost like, I don't know what to do with it. Have I got it? So I get rid of it because I don't feel comfortable in it. Do you know what I mean? So it's a really interesting way of looking at drinking, actually, um, how you explained it. And I, I've not really heard that before as well. So thank you for that. Pleasure. I think I think it is a real process, right? If we've struggled with self-worth, like a lot of people that drink will, right? That when we try and remove that tool and sit in the calm and the joy and the peace, try and calm down our nervous systems. And like you say, like money stuff, step into our power, step into our worth, like shine that light that has been so dimmed yeah. for our entire lives. When we start to do that, I'm not shocked that there'll be parts of us going, oh no, do it again. And like I've noticed as well, like you'll probably relate to this, like when you're an entrepreneur and you're you're expanding and you're growing, right? And you're more people are noticing and good things are happening in business. Like that's when I'm like, let's have a drink. And I mask it as let's celebrate. Yeah. But no, it's not. It's oh no, this is terrifying. This could be taken away at any moment. Like you say with the money, better give it away because I'm going to lose it anyway. Yeah. I'll get cancelled. But that, like, that's complete self-worth because there's a yeah. part in there that's saying I don't deserve it. Exactly. There's still that part. There's still that shame swamp of yeah. I'm not worthy of this. I'm yeah. never going to be good enough. Uh, and that, and that, that can um, be with sobriety as well, right? Yeah. And, and this is why it's important to deal with the other stuff because I always say, and I, I always caveat that by saying, look, don't let that put you off. But actually giving up the drinking is quite often the easier part. It's dealing with the emotions. But with that, you can get support. And it's essential you do get support. Whatever model that looks like, it's essential, right? And that's about self-development, self-growth with support. And that's where your life can change because our limiting beliefs come from lack of self-worth. And that, you know, by what you say about your childhood, it's like you was being shouted at and criticized and made to feel like you did. You know, for me, it was like, you know, I was ne- never shown affection or mm. or s- be told that they were proud of me and whatever. And I know it to some people that go, well, that's nothing. But, mm. you know, this is why I say about little T's, big T's, yeah. you know. And if you're highly sensitive, which I always have been, yeah, and I've always been an empath as well. So I yeah. really feel the feels. My therapists say it's the empath's curse. Do you know what I mean? It, it There's two sides to it. Yeah. You can really, really nurture and look after other people, but then you can often become the victim. You know, like I, I talk about the drama triangle a lot. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I read something on your page. It was about healing parts mm-hmm. that are unhealed in you. Like when when you are being a rescuer, yeah. you try and rescue other people. That's part of your character, but often that can lead to your own demise, can't it? Oh, it can. All these protector parts that formed, like there would be that moment in childhood that I decided they come before me. That person, I remember all the time, your dad's not well, be quiet. Don't upset yeah. your dad. 
So you just internalize that, don't you? Like, right, okay, I have to look after him. I have to be caretaker. And then, yeah, absolutely, that rescuer in the drama triangle comes out. And it was the moment I realized, you know, that's so disempowering for both parties. Absolutely. So disempowering for anyone to rescue someone else. Um, and it's and it's why I burnt out all the time. Yeah. But, you know, it's an interesting it. subject because, you know, I get approached by people and they say, you know, partners of alcoholics and they go, I've done everything I can to help them. And I say, and where's that left you? Well, they're exactly the same, but I feel absolutely broken. So quite often being the rescuer doesn't do anything. It makes it harder. And sometimes you enable them as well because they think, oh, well, they're looking after me and I don't have to think about myself anymore, you know, but then the rescuer becomes the victim and then quite often the persecutor. Do you know what I mean? So so it's like, don't enter the drama triangle in the first place and find out why you want to rescue as well. What's behind that? Is that because your lack of self-worth, you feel like by rescuing, that's going to make you feel better about yourself. And that's the core work there, isn't it? Oh, it is. And it's so subconscious, isn't it, right? That when I realised, like, it was almost like I've got these, like, invisible energetic cords to so many things, like, rescuing my partner, um, being the leader at work and getting validation and like, oh, I must need a certificate now. I must do, study this. And it was like, no, 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 cut those cords. Those people that you're trying to rescue, they will find the answer. They've always had the answers inside themselves if you just hold space. And I have to give my own fuel supply for my own self Yeah, I love that. You know, you have to have your own piece of the pie. Hundred percent, and you know there there are other ways of doing it as well without rescuing. You can support without rescuing as well by listening, but also always say to to partners as well. At some point, you do have to put yourself first because otherwise, it's like a big anchor. It will just drag you under, which no one wins. Then do they? No, they really don't. So now, then, six years on from that, in two thousand and twenty-three. What's life looking like now for you? Gosh, I want to give that 2017 Jess a massive hug and be like, Jess, this is always going to change for you. It's so different now and it's been messy, right? It's been imperfect, this journey, and I'm still on it, right? And always will be as well. (laughs) Sat in front of you, still doing the work every single damn day, right? Um, But it's so different. I've, I've left the corporate world which just did not suit me for my personality, for my trauma. Now I've got my own business, worked really hard to bring my own energy and what I want to bring into this business, which is going to ultimately protect myself and my self-care first and foremost. Yeah. Enables me to still do this deep inner work, to still put myself first so I can be there for those people I serve. So yeah, my life is so different. My dad is still sober. We've got a better relationship now boundaried yeah and do you um have those intimate chats with him about the past so how does that feel for you both yeah you know what i i do love my dad dearly he can be a bloody nightmare he'll put his hand up he's he is but he is the most funniest kind-hearted caring man i've been able to have chats with him really spiritual chats which i love sober like you know, why he ended up getting into the pickles he got himself in, right? And what he was ultimately looking for. And he says, and my mum says as well, like, I wish you guys had been around when we were your age. He just looks at what we do with awe and he's like, 
this is incredible. And some of the stuff and some of the content I know I must post must be activating. And he he just takes it. He just knows this is going to serve so many people. Yeah. Um, and he keeps apologizing. And I'm like, stop. It's okay. I've worked through a lot of it. But he was really good when it was like, dad, I'm going through deep trauma therapy. I need to just cut contact just while I go through that process. And he was like, fine. You know what I mean? He's been so supportive. I couldn't have asked for anything better. And I've got the duality now, which I didn't have in 2017, where I can honor so many different realities of, I have compassion for you. I have compassion for my mom, you know, all this unhealed trauma whilst also going, it was so unfair and I didn't deserve it. Yeah. That's amazing. Like that's been healing in itself. Self-compassion, understanding others, you know, like when, when I think about when I was in the depths of my darkness most of my behavior was how I felt about myself yes so much anger so much resentment to my you know what have I become I'm so full of self-hatred that I deflected it onto others and I realized that now but for the others they must have looked at me like what an absolute pig of a man and this is why in the Nicoa week with the wonderful Sarah Drage, we did that episode of her asking questions that her dad couldn't answer, Steve, because he wasn't here anymore, you know? So we did those reels where she said, was your drinking more important than me? Yeah. You know, and and I could answer those questions because I was so hooked in into my addiction that it had nothing to do with the other person. It was to, all to do with me. And it was when I come out of it, I could self-reflect and realize that my incredible self-loathing of when I was young, I was this person. And now look what I've turned into, this vile man who's, yeah. I could go in a whole podcast of how I felt about myself, but this has taken years of self-development, reflection, acceptance. Yeah, You know, people talk about regret of the past, right? And I always say it's like a section of my life that I cannot fix all of it. No. There are certain parts that I, I can address, but there's other parts I have to accept yeah. right, and move on. And this is the part of my life that the people still in it, I can make amends um, yeah. because I'm a different version of myself. Now I'm the version that I want to be. And that, what you said about the journey you're on, that will never end until we're gone, you know? And that's what's fabulous about it as well, because we're excited about that. We're not like, oh, when's this going to end? Like a marathon. It's like, I cannot wait to see what where I'm going to be in a year's time. This feels really exciting, right? Oh, it does. And just those tools to be able to go inwards and to be, to give myself what I didn't get. That's been the biggest thing that has served me not just in my personal life, but it serves me in business. It really does like this unwavering, like when everything feels like it's like, that I've got this like foundation now that I can always feel grounded in. That's, that's amazing. So tell us a little bit now, um, what you actually do. I will. So it's funny, actually, my coaching started as highly sensitive support. Because when I found out about high sensitivity, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm seen. <laughs> I remember what, yeah, I was like, I watched the documentary Sensitive with Alanis Morissette, who was my God. And I was like, oh my God, 
I'm seen. This is me. So a lot of my coaching was around that initially to start with. Um, but over the last year, 18 months, key people like Nicoa, Josh Connolly, you guys, like it's enabled me and Vicky Patterson actually with her documentary enabled me to honor the fact and say the words, I am an adult child of an alcoholic. Mm. And that was the moment my coaching evolved. So I still work with highly sensitive people, but actually because of the content I was posting, I was already kind of attracting adult children anyway. So I now mostly support adult children of alcoholics. And uh, one of the main things I say is that I want every adult child of an alcoholic to know their worth and to know they've always been worthy. So it's very much the work I do, whether it's in one-to-one or I've got a group program called Courageous Healing, which is like a group empowerment for adult children. It's all about building that self-awareness in a compassionate way, understanding like you mentioned, drama triangle, where are we sitting in it, really empowering ourselves to take hold of where, how are we showing up in the world? What are the dynamics that we're in? But then building on that inner child connection, building that self-worth, that maybe we're getting externally currently. Like it's all about coming home to ourselves. I call my program Reclaim Yourself because I think we lose that. We lose that in early childhood. Um, So it's all just about bringing that connection back to self and just realizing how much power we have and how safe we are to shine our light, to be in the calm, to receive joy, pleasure, money, all of that stuff that maybe we've just foreboded because it didn't feel safe. So yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. It's like I'm here to hold safe spaces for people that have been through similar lived experiences. I absolutely love that. Thank you, Jess. And before we go, let's talk about your work with Nakoa. What a fabulous organization. And you know, I've done events with them and met everyone and it's like a huge family isn't it it just feels so beautiful doesn't it it is I cannot tell you like how deeply seen I felt when I discovered Nakoa and meeting you Sarah Amy everyone you know who I know will be such a beautiful part of my journey going forward and just being able to champion one another to support one another we are all doing in our own ways incredible work in this world so the more we can lift each other up, the more we can support each other. And the more we can do for Nakoa to raise funds, yeah. my goodness, like it's just, I feel so much pride and I feel so much joy that there is that support available that wasn't there when when we were kids. So I just want to champion and support Nakoa and you guys as much as I can, really. Yeah. And uh, it's important for anyone listening to this who can identify to your story Nicola have a free chat line that just is great people to reach out to and help so many thousands of people over the world, don't they? So it's just so brilliant. Jess, it's been a real joy to share this this episode with people. You're a real credit to your story. You know, you've been through such a lot, and there were many goosebump moments there when you were talking. I'm so grateful you come on as a guest and I look forward to seeing you again, whatever that may look like, whether it's going to be in a cover football event or yes. another big walk or whatever it'll be, parliament again, I don't know, but I can't wait to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you, beautiful human. Thank you for holding space for me. Oh, bless you. See you soon. See you soon. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.